Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us and bringing us through this past year with all of its griefs and troubles and sorrows. And we thank you that we are here now in your house to worship you. You are worthy of all our praise. And so we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. You'd open our eyes and our ears. You'd soften our hearts that in seeing Jesus and the love you have for us in him, that we would be changed and transformed and filled with joy and gratitude. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is a uh, difficult and often dangerous task to attempt to recreate the motives and thoughts of a people who lived in the past. They are not here to tell us what they were actually thinking, and yet that information is vital when assigning significance to some statement or event of the past. Without them, we must simply do our best to understand why they did what they did and said what they said. And this is the very position we find ourselves in this morning. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds take up palm branches and they rush out to meet him on the road where they wave their palm branches and they lay them on the street and together they shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The text provides us with the details of what, what happened that day but offers no explanation as to why. Why did the crowds do this for Jesus? What were they expecting from him? They're not still alive today to tell us the answers to those questions. So we're left to responsibly recreate them as best we can. And our recreation begins about 200 years before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So come back with me to Jerusalem in the year 164 BC, before Christ. There were Jews living in Jerusalem at that time, and the temple was still standing, but Jerusalem was under foreign occupation. The Jews were being harshly mistreated, and the temple had been defiled. The Seleucids were that foreign power occupying Jerusalem at that time. And their king was the famous Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have heard of this man before. He despised the Jews and he made it his goal to exterminate them through assimilation. He wanted to get rid of everything that made them a people distinct from the Seleucids until they blended in so much that they eventually just disappeared. And he did this by making it illegal to study the scriptures to observe the Sabbath, to circumcise their children. He also eliminated the daily sacrifice in the temple and profaned that holy space by setting up pagan idols in the courtyards and sacrificing pigs on the altar. Everything that made the Jews distinct and everything that they considered to be holy was taken from them or defiled. And Antiochus Epiphanes forced the Jews to instead perform pagan rituals 
and worship the gods of the Seleucids. And he gave them two options. Their options were compliance or death. He was largely successful in his extermination campaign until he met a man named Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus was not his last name, but his nickname. It meant the hammer. He was Judas the hammer, and for good reason. Because when faced with the choice between compliance and death, Judas chose death. Judas Maccabeus refused to comply with these foreign impositions and instead decided to fight. He put together a ragtag group of men who proved themselves surprisingly effective in their resistance under the military brilliance of Judas, their leader. Judas and his army won a series of battles, each one increasingly more significant and hard fought as they made their way to Jerusalem where they would take back the temple from the Seleucids by force. And for the first time in two years, they offered sacrifices to God after tearing down the pagan idols and purifying the altar and rededicating that space for holy use. It was an incredibly momentous occasion in the history of the Jewish people. And 2 Maccabees 10 tells us how they celebrated this historic victory. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booths. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They celebrated the military victory against a foreign power occupying Jerusalem with the waving of palm branches and in the manner of the festival of booths. Well, do you know what they would shout during the festival of booths while they were waving their palm branches? You guessed it, Hosanna. They would shout Hosanna while waving their palm branches, save us. The Maccabeans would control Jerusalem for about 100 more years after that historic day. But in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey led the Romans in their takeover of the region and of the city of Jerusalem in particular. Again, Jerusalem was occupied by a foreign power and the Jews absolutely hated it. They couldn't wait to get rid of the Romans just as Judas had done to the Seleucids with military force. And that is when Jesus came onto the scene. And mounting a donkey began his journey into Jerusalem. The crowds had already flagged him as a leader with potential because they had heard about his raising of Lazarus from the dead. John even mentions in verse 17 that some of the people who had witnessed that miracle were present in the crowds and telling other people about it. I saw him raise a man from the dead. And so hope and excitement began to rise in the hearts of the Jews. They'd been looking for another Judas Maccabeus to free them from the tyranny of the Romans. Could Jesus be the one? Could Jesus be the second coming of the hammer? To show that was what they were thinking, they broke out palm branches, began shouting Hosanna as Jesus approached Jerusalem, which is precisely how they celebrated Judas's victory in retaking Jerusalem. And they even quote Psalm 118, word for word, Hosanna, 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they added to it, the king of Israel. The crowd was egging Jesus on. They were trying to help him envision his role as their deliverer, calling him a king even. And they believed that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to fight for them by expelling the Romans. They believed he was taking up their personal and nationalistic cause. They believed Jesus was on their side, that he had not come to call them to repentance, but to bring them comfort and victory. And in that way, their view of Jesus closely resembles how he's viewed by an increasing number of people today. Christian Smith is a a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. Go Irish, right? No? Okay. I didn't think I'd get much on that one. Uh, Christian Smith, he spent his time trying to articulate the dominant religion of contemporary teenagers in the United States. And what he has found to be true of teenagers, he has found to also be true of adults as well. And that is that within the traditional religions of, of Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism, whatever they are, there is actually a new religion that has infiltrated the beliefs of those who would otherwise identify as one of those particular religions. And this new religion that runs across all religions is what Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. In describing the God of this new religion, Smith writes this, this God is not demanding. He actually can't be. Since his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people feel better about themselves, and has not become too personally involved in the process. Perhaps the worst the God of moralistic therapeutic deism can do is to simply fail to provide his promised therapeutic blessings, in which case those who believe in him are entitled to be grumpy. And this pitiful grumpiness is exactly what we see in the Pharisees in verse 19 who were much further along in the realization that Jesus was not interested in merely further strengthening their positions of power or advancing their personal agendas. The crowds heralded Jesus and they pouted on the sidelines, complaining that the whole world has gone after him. Their grip on the people was slipping and they condemned the Son of God in their selfish absorption. Now, there are many problems with a God who is part divine butler and part cosmic therapist. The grumbling is one of them. But two of those problems are one, the blind assumption that our problems are the only problems God should and does care about. And two, the assumption that we are innocent. You see, if God exists to solve our problems and make us feel good. As Christian Smith reports, is a dominantly held belief by contemporary Americans. And what happens when your problem is another person? And more intimately, what happens when that person is also a Christian? What then? Should we pray that God removes them? This is a question for individuals, for countries, for different ethnic groups, for everyone. Would you have asked the people lining the street in Jerusalem that day 
as Jesus rode into the city, if they wanted Jesus to take out the Romans, you would have received an enthusiastic yes. They were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Who do you think they wanted Jesus to save them from? It was the Romans. They wanted it to be hammer time. And yet Jesus, albeit in the Gospel of Matthew, commands us to pray for our enemies. There is no place for such silliness, such grace and humility in the heart of a person who believes in a God who exists to solve our personal or corporate problems and make us feel good. It's no wonder that both left and right in America are incredibly self-righteous and incapable of gracious speech or actions if this is the God we have come to believe in, a God who only cares about our problems, our agenda. And the other problem with this belief in the God of moralistic therapeutic deism is the assumption that we're innocent, right? God's perfectly pleased with us, making no demands of us. And therefore, our only problems are circumstantial in nature, and we show no concern for the state of our souls. But it's interesting that though Jesus did not silence the crowd, egging him on to overthrow the Romans, he also did not fulfill their request. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He didn't silence them because they weren't entirely wrong in looking to Jesus as a savior and as a conquering king. Jesus did come as a savior for his, for his people, but he came to save them, not from the Romans, but from their own sin. And in that way, he came to be a savior for the Romans as well. Indeed, for all of humanity, for you even. We are so preoccupied with our circumstances and the assumption that we are innocent that we've neglected any concern for our souls. But Jesus remains concerned with the state of our souls. And he's willing to go to great lengths in order to redeem us from the power of sin and death. He did not go to Jerusalem in order to defeat the Romans, but to defeat the devil and to win for himself people from every tribe, language, and nation. And he did this by dying as our substitute and for our sin. We are so far from innocent. In the death of Jesus, we see how costly our sin is, that our sin could be forgiven only through the death of a perfect human being. And because only God can be perfect, the Son of God took on flesh and God died instead of us. We are so far from innocent and yet we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. Jesus presses on to Jerusalem through all of our grumbling, through all of our egocentricity, through all of our delusional naivety and he goes to the cross out of love for us. That is not based on our perfection or our goodness, but merely on his choice to do so, his choice to love you. He insists on redeeming our souls for himself. If only we would care about our souls as much. If only the whole world would actually go after him, not for what they might receive, but out of gratitude for what he has already given. 
My dear friends, the most important thing about us as we prepare to leave this world at the end of our lives will not be the balance in our bank accounts or our youthful achievements, but the fact that we are found in Christ through faith. And because we're so dim-witted and thick, corrupted by sin in all our senses, the Jesus must use our, our circumstances, the discomforts and pain that we try to eliminate at all costs in order to force us to consider whether he is enough for us. Is his sacrifice of love for us enough? Or we, will we reject him because he did not do what we wanted him to do for us? And Jesus came to save us from our sin and the influence of the devil and the power of death. And when he comes to make things, make all things new, let us be found rejoicing in him regardless of our circumstances rather than pouting on the sidelines. He has given us eternal life. We have no right to be grumpy and he has every right to be demanding of us. And so I leave you with the question that Jesus put to his disciples 2,000 years ago. What profit is it to you if you gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? But Jesus has come to redeem our soul. And after a short while of suffering in this world, he will return to give you the world. Hosanna, save us, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.